Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today on the show, we have the last in our series of programmes focusing on UBS's annual flagship Greater China Conference, the 23rd edition of which took place back in January. We previously enjoyed highlights from a keynote in which UBS's Kirsten Parker, a tech banker based in Singapore, held a fascinating conversation with Lulu Chen, Asia Investing and Real Estate Team Leader in Bloomberg and author of a new book about China's tech ambitions. We also heard from a panel featuring insights into the global economic and policy outlook for the rest of the year and beyond, with a particular focus on what the most recent data says about recession and inflation. Today, we are wrapping things up with insights from Dr. Nasser Saidi, president of Nasser Saidi & Associates, business and economic advisory consultant, a former chief economist of the Dubai International Financial Centre Authority, and the first governor of the Central Bank of Lebanon, amongst other achievements. The discussion was headlined, China and the Middle East, old friends in a new era. A former guest on this show, UBS APAC head of research Martin Yule was putting the questions. Martin began by asking Dr. Saidi to explain the relationship, as he sees it, between China and the Middle East. We're living increasingly in a multipolar world. There's a lot of talk about decoupling, and maybe later on I'm going to be mentioning that uh, this decoupling is going to favour the countries of the Middle East, and particularly the GCC countries. And we need to remember there's a very, very long history, going back at least uh, to the time of the Silk Road, which passed through the Middle East onto Europe. Europe really was not on the map. A lot of the trade was actually happening with many of the countries of the Middle East. And so if you look at trade and to a lesser extent investment, there's a long history of that. If you look at the modern period, the trade has been expanding very rapidly. So over the short space of about 20 years, China went and became the biggest economic and trade partner of the Middle East region, and in particular the GCC. And increasingly, that's not just about oil. I mean, a lot of people just think, well, this is just an oil and gas story. True, that was the case initially. But as the GCC countries and the rest of the Middle East started diversifying their economy and growing and developing, many more items entered into the trade. So now you've got China being viewed as not only a trade partner, but also an economic partner. And the bottom line, and I hope, I hope we'll get to it, is that I view the GCC, in particular Saudi and the UAE, as being the gateway for China to the rest of the Middle East. These are developing countries, uh, but these are also countries with enormous wealth, which we know. There's the oil and gas wealth, but there's also enormous reserves, international reserves, which are now being managed by the sovereign wealth funds and the investment funds of the Middle East, as well as by family offices. So you're right to say that they're not much on the equity map of the world, but nevertheless, they're now part of MSCI. UAE, uh, Saudi, Qatar are part of MSCI, and they're coming in in a big way. And the reason why they're coming in in a big way is because of what I call economic diversification 2.0 by which I mean the realization by the GCC countries in particular that they cannot continue with the old diversification path. They need to do things differently. 
they see a world with an energy transition, and they see down on the horizon that eventually oil and gas assets might become assets which are stranded, which have no value. And therefore, they need to accompany the energy transition. They need to be part of it, and indeed, maybe a maker of it. What I mean by maker of it is investing heavily in renewable energy. Think of solar, but also think of hydrogen. So again, what I see on the horizon is a new energy map emerging. Um, look at what's happening in Europe. Countries are worried about their energy security mm. and their food security, and they're going towards protectionism insofar as those two items are, are concerned. But yet, much of the answer, <laughs> certainly for energy security, happens to lie in the Middle East. And so what I think people in APAC should, should look at is a big transformation that's happening and enormous opportunities. And there's no better way of seeing that than by looking at President Xi's visit to Saudi Arabia a couple of weeks ago. Just before we get into that, though, I suppose, you know, in that history of the relationship, without sort of fast-forwarding to some of the, the sort of conclusions that I'm sure we'll spend some time on, in that history of the relationship, I mean, I understand there's been an ongoing dialogue about, you know, trade agreements with sure. China, like there has been with a lot of other countries more, more recently through that GCC. And, of course, GCC in this context is the, the Gulf, Gulf Cooperation, Cooperation Council, not, not the Greater China Conference. But um, what, has, what has been the history there and how formal are the, is the relationship in your eyes? And, and, and I suppose the, uh, bringing us up to that conversation right. with Xi. Remember, let's remember that uh, China went into WTO in, in the year 2000. Now, negotiations actually started on a free trade agreement with the GCC countries shortly after that. And they started in 2004. We're in 2022, they have not been concluded yet. There are many reasons that, that lie behind that. Primarily that the GCC countries were not mature enough, really, to think of what, is, what sort of trade and, and economic relations and investment relations should I have with China. I now see them as having matured and open to trade negotiations and I think accelerated. I don't want to venture, but I'm, I'm willing to take a bet that we'll probably see a GCC-China free trade agreement, or at least one of the countries in the GCC, probably within 2023, 2024. Mm. And the reasons are, are, are very clear. Major trade partner, major investment partner, and it's a bilateral investment opportunity that, that arises. So maybe, as in, in other cases, you start with what we call a TIFA, a trade and investment framework agreement, and then you progress to a free trade agreement and put that in place. The difficulty with the GCC is that they need to, since it's a customs union, in principle, they should negotiate collectively. And whenever you want to negotiate collectively, it becomes a bit difficult, as we know from the history of the EU uh, ne negotiations of, of trade agreements. So it could very well be that uh, Saudi uh, or UAE could start with a free trade agreement. UAE has signed a number of recent uh, free trade agreements with India, notably, their, their direct business partner, Indonesia. They've signed on to the Abraham Accords. Um, which means free trade with, with Israel, both with Bahrain and UAE. And they're thinking of another, another set of countries on, on the trade agenda. So this also reflects 
this willingness to open up the GCC countries to more trade and investment. Previously in the past, getting into the GCC and investing directly faced barriers. They're removing those barriers. And they're removing those barriers both for direct investment, but also for people to go and work and live there. And this came really after uh, the COVID shock. And just before we go into COVID, as the... I suppose that you, you, you referenced a number of things that have sort of kept that free trade agreement on ice for 18 plus years. Uh, you know, is one of the issues essentially that coming out of the GCC is, is, is largely energy export, oil yes. and oil derivatives. Exports to the region are clearly far more diverse and complex. And so in a way, you know, China can pretty narrowly define terms around the, the trade agreement and it's not going to cause them any issues in reverse they could be quite large. Is that, sure. is that fundamentally the, the problem behind that? I think part of, part of the issue was, you're right, you didn't have a lot to export apart from, from oil and gas and derivatives and petrochemicals on the right. And of course, that has developed very rapidly. But now the GCC countries, the number one priority is, is to diversify the economy. And the reasons are fundamental. The demographics, they have very young populations. You take a country like Saudi Arabia, 60% of the population is below 30 years of age. So you need to create jobs for them. They become educated. Many of them have gone to Europe and the United States. They graduated from there. They come back and they say, well, you've educated me, you've provided me with, with subsidies, in fact, to do so. Uh, where's the job where I can use the skills, knowledge, and talent? And that means that you need to go into economic diversification 2.0, digital economy, digital commerce, e-commerce and, and the like, new technologies, renewable energy. And this is where I think China comes in as a partner. You could not do that in the past because then it would just mean that you're simply a consumption market. Now, what you can say to China is, I want you to come in also as an economic partner. I want you to help me invest in new industry. And it just so happens that those are the areas in which China has a comparative advantage. Let's look at renewable energy, solar in particular. Mm -hmm. Solar has, China has a comparative advantage. All of us use these panels, uh, solar, etc., And they all happen to be made in China. Now, GCC, particularly Saudi and UAE, are heavily investing into solar and renewable energy. And to explain that, it's, it's, not, it's not simply households or factories or businesses which are installing panels. The production of energy in the GCC goes along with desalination. We need to remember that this is a desert and there's no water. You've got some aquifer water, but if you start exploiting your aquifer water, you can soon run out and you're going to have to may wait may maybe a million years for it to come back again. That's not likely to happen in our lifetime. So increasingly what they're doing is they're desalinating. And what perhaps a lot of people don't know is that 50% of the world's desalination capacity is in the GCC countries. So you're, you're producing energy in the daytime at night time, you use that energy when the power supply is not being used by households and businesses. You use that to desalinate and you get water for consumption, agriculture and everything else. Now, interestingly, that's a technology that you could export to the rest of the world. The rest of the world is facing, because of climate change, increasingly 
a loss of, of water resources. Continuing growing population, but increased desertification in the world. So, intriguingly, you could have these countries living desertic, a climate, exporting technologies which can be used across the world. So there are opportunities like that which I think are fascinating. Mm. And so, really, following President Xi's visit, it's opening up a new vista of investment opportunities. Maybe we can discuss that. But I'm very optimistic about the growth of the markets. We're already having the development of government debt markets, which didn't exist in the past. Because remember as well, these are countries that have run large surpluses. If I look at 2022, of course, 22 is, is an exceptional year in terms of high oil prices. But you're running current account surpluses, running 15, 16, 17% of GDP. Which is, which is one of the reasons I think people in our audience would be thinking, why, does the, you know, why do the Gulf states need FDI when you know, effectively they're, they're long cash? And you know, many of our audience, I think, would be preferring that they were looking for sort of investment opportunities out in this region. So, and they are. Yeah, which, which of course they are. So do you want to just talk about that in terms of you know, their, I suppose, the aspiration and um, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, you know, his initiatives to uh, try and diversify, so the two point zero that you mentioned, you know, and in contrast, the sort of the opportunities um, to use the considerable capital the region's generated to go out and invest in the rest of the world. I think what people need to realise is that it's going both ways. Um, if you look at the forecast of how much additional reserves and revenues are going to be generated from now to 2026, the IMF estimates that 1.3 trillion to 1.4 trillion will be accumulated by these countries. Okay. Now, in the past, what used to happen is that all of this went in either into international reserves of the central banks or went to the sovereign wealth fund and then was exported and invested outside. What is now happening, along with Economic Diversification 2.0, is new guidance and direction given to the sovereign wealth funds and government investment funds. Invest domestically, acquire technology from outside, so go ahead and invest in companies outside, private equity, venture capital, be expensive, but then also think of technologies and knowledge I can bring back home. I want to see a partnership. I want it to go both ways. So I think the message is, yes, they're more than willing, and particularly to invest in Asia and China, I think, looms large. But I think they're also looking at acquisitions and companies and mergers which can bring activity and investment back. So the FDI is required simply because they lack the technology. And FDI is a good way to attract the technology along with the knowledge. And the two need to go together. Remember, these are relatively small populations compared to the natural resource wealth and the financial wealth that they have. So they need to attract the people as well as the technology and knowledge. And what's happened post-COVID is that they've opened up the doors for immigration. So you can now have a lifetime visa. You can go and retire there. Um, so uh, Dubai is now saying to people, look, I've got the sun, sea, sand shopping, and uh, your children and grandchildren can come and visit you and use our airlines, Etihad, Emirates Airlines, and, and all the rest. So we're open. So come and think of this as a retirement place. 
and they're allowing you to own apartments and villas and all the rest. And we've just seen that in, in, in 2022, Russians and Ukrainians coming in and droves coming in. So it's become, interestingly, a safe haven, both for people as well as capital from the rest of the world. Dr. Nasser Saidi wrapping up our selection of remarks from a panel entitled China in the Middle East, Old Friends in a New Era, which took place at January's UBS Greater China Conference. UBS APAC Head of Research Martin Yule was putting the questions. And that's all for this week's edition of the programme. You can listen again and find out more at monocle.com. And for more from the GCC, dip into the archive, which you can find there, or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. To find out how UBS can help you, head to ubs.com now for information, insight and inspiration. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.